under your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Clark. Welcome. Oh, no. Sing it, Johnny. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Alongside me, as always, on Mondays, is Troy. What's up, man? How's it going? I thought I could really feel the bass from the song, but I realized you're just kicking your foot up and down. Uh-huh. Yeah, it worked. You are in time. Yeah, I got to go see him live Saturday night at the Impact. How was it? It was fantastic. And he didn't have the full production like this. Uh, like with the backup singers and all that. But he did uh, Lie to Me, which is his first hit he ever got. He did that as the like third encore to the show, to close the show. And it started off with just him. I thought it was the best performance of the night from him. Just him and an acoustic guitar. And like belting like you're hearing on that track. Um, the new album is Signs, came out last year. And he just... He's, going crazy just him and his guitar and then the whole band comes in but i i wish he'd done the whole show just him and a guitar like it was so moving and like the when talent just oozes out of somebody you're like you know i can carry a tune a little bit like mm-hmm. i could sit and learn a song i don't have that mm-hmm. whatever like, that guy has it's like the first time you hear adele mm. i mean what adele adele yeah I didn't expect you to go that way. Dude, she can she can rip it. Yeah, she can blow? Yeah, she's she can got belt it? she's got some pipes. Yeah. And I didn't I didn't know you were an Adele fan. Well, sometimes I am. Have you consumed all her major albums? I've set fire to the rain. Yeah. <laughs> you did. Yeah. Did you say hello from the other side? Well, I see in my world I don't have sides. Oh, okay. Yeah. You, you're on everybody's side, or nobody's. Well, it depends. Hmm. Whatever suits me best. Well, and some folks might be listening to their radio now. Oh, and this is a news talk station. I want some news. And we could share some news with folks. But really, what I aim for with the show, some nights, I'll occasionally do serious news. But it's, I'm revealing my cards here. But a big influence on me for talk show, and one of the best talk shows I've ever heard, and it's not a radio show. It was the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. Yeah, he was really good. Him and Jeff the Robot, which was Josh Robert Thompson. Mm-hmm. And I got watching old clips of Ferguson and Jeff going back and forth. And, like, Ferguson being in a German... Are we German? 
Uh, I, I tend to like the stylings of Daffy Duke. <laughs> it just, it cracks him up for the whole show. And I was listening to some interviews, too, because Ferguson now has a radio show. Yeah. And uh, it's fantastic. I listened to Stephen Fry earlier today. Plan on listening to the one with you, Lori. That was the weirdest announcement over the weekend with Stephen Fry. I didn't see that. What, what's going he on? He posted there? a video and he was like, I have, uh, it's either colon or prostate cancer. Oh. Stage four. Man. But he's already beat it. He like waited what? to beat it to announce it. What? Well, I'm, I'm kind of glad he did it that way. Yeah. Yeah, it saved it saved me a lot of thoughts and prayers. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he's fine. He beat stage four colon cancer or pro, prostate in, in, cancer. In so far as much as you can be fine, because right. I it, correct me if I'm wrong here, but don't you have to like you've got a period of time yes. after they've sort of cleared you either from the size of the tumor or whether or not it's metastasizing. Is, yes, and then you've got a couple years where every year that. That probability goes down. Yeah, you go in for regular checkups. You, it could come back. Right. Um, and so that's great news for him, though. Yeah. Well, and it's it's kind of I don't want to joke about it too much, but what is it that South Park joked about with AIDS? Like Magic Johnson discovered the cure for AIDS. It's called money. <laughs> and, and I think it's the same thing with any major disease. If you have the money or the means to command a lot of resources, the best doctors in the world, you can usually beat things, but it's not always true. Stephen Fry's good friend, Christopher Hitchens, died mm -hmm. of uh, esophageal cancer. You can prolong. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes it wins. Yeah. It's fact. I, I used to go through that sort of like why, especially with my mom. And that is the most dangerous question. Why? Why without really wanting an answer? Kind yeah. of look into the sky, shake your fist. Why? Because, I mean, I'm, I feel like even... So I've, I mean, I've never been in a situation like you had with your mom, but I've been in situations where the most and loudest, the most important and loudest question I've ever asked is why. Yeah. Screaming it. Yeah. Up at the sky, Not looking down, just in my head, out in the world, just screaming why. Knowing that even if I get an answer, there's like a really good chance I'm not going to like it. Even if, I mean, especially if it's, if the answer, if it ever does come is because. Yeah. <laughs> some of it comes down to that. Yeah. Like I was reading uh, an article on some new cancer studies that came out and some cancers are clearly environmental. Like it's more of a beast of nurture or not nurturing yourself. So if you consume tobacco, lots of alcohol. Poisoning a water supply. That does it. Yes, any sort of toxins that can get into people's system, yeah, you'll, you might get cancer from that. It increases the probability. But then they showed in this study there are a lot of other cancers, and I think sadly it's the one uh, that affected my mom and also is affecting John McCain, a geoblastoma. It's mm -hmm. the type of brain cancer that diffuses through the brain, so you can't really do surgery on it. Right. Um, they said so that type of cancer and others are complete genetic mutations. Like, that's... Which I don't know. Like, I right. kind of read these studies. I'm like, I'm not a scientist. Even scientists can't think scientifically all day long. And, and it's one of those things where it, it would be nice to have a buffer. Now, if uh, I'm, I'm going to consider a fellow human being a buffer mm. so that they can unpack that information. Because if you've ever read a science paper, there's just a, so much stuff that I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, you have to know so much background information. Right. 
And so if someone who knew all that stuff could unpack it and be like, hey, this is what this means. And they could just, you know, kind of ignore all the, all of the, the words, jargon, lingo, language, everything that would lose a normal person who didn't have that information. That would be good. Well, and there's this new push now. Um, I read it last week. It was an article from Steven Pinker, who's a fairly renowned psychologist um, and neuroscientist, I believe at Harvard. And he wrote a piece on how there's now this new battle again. Some are saying it's a repeat of the battles of the 90s, but this new battle between the hard sciences and your liberal arts or social studies. And that, okay, we're sitting over here as biologists and psychologists studying, like, say, tendencies in men and women, defined as men and women by their sex. And yet you have people in the humanities teaching that there is no such thing as an objective man or woman. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, we need to have a discussion here at least Mm -hmm. and not make it adversarial. Um, Too late. No, it's already too late. Too late. The people in the humanities already put themselves in positions of power to dictate what can be taught, what can be learned. It's a mess. It is a huge mess. And, I mean, there's okay, the way I would kind of boil it down is there are two problems. I think both camps have their points. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is this old school notion. It's where a lot of postmodernism comes from, and I think where postmodernism is correct. Is there used to be these ideas where people said this is an objective fact about men and women. This is an objective fact about people in general. And these facts are not only objective, but they're normative. That if anybody deviates from that objective fact, we are not only suspecting that there's something a little aberrant weird about them, but they're also morally depraved. Mm-hmm. Like, so the objective facts started to have import on what is morally true. And I think sometimes uh, things would sneak into the picture saying, I'm an objective fact, I'm an objective standard, where it clear it wasn't. And yet people treated it that way. We talked about it last week, didn't we? An honest lie. Yeah. Well, honest lies or just bad science. Mm-hmm. And so people hold these terrible views as though they're objective and scientific. Like phrenologists. Yeah. People who studied the shape of the human skull in order to determine whatever it was they were trying to determine that ended up being really influential on racism. Oh, then the racism, the history of racism in this country is is fascinating. I love the work of Thaddeus Russell, where it, it wasn't just... In America, you get the specific scientific racism that does, like, skull size and how people look. And that was very unique to America and, like, Britain. Um, but there is also the what has historically been racism, sort of like classism. Mm-hmm. That, like, when the Irish come over, they're not considered white. When the Italians come over, they're not considered white. Um, there are even books by, like, reputable professors at the time, MIT and Harvard, saying that, like... Jewish people are black, and like the black became this class distinction, and white was even more this upper class distinction where it was white, Anglo Saxon, Protestant. Mm-hmm. Um, Wasp. Yes, and there there is that history, and it's fascinating. But and so they would take what was not really a true standard, like all these weird racial distinctions and categories and hierarchies they would build, and they would treat it as the God sent truth. It was really the GD truth, but they sent it, they treated it as God sent and enforced it on people. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it was terrible. It was awful. So everybody goes, okay, well, let's not have opinions like that. But then there's another problem where you take that too far, where you go, everything's subjective. And the only way something is treated as objective, as the rule that must be enforced, is just a bare-bone struggle over power, whether it's economic, cultural power, or political power. So nothing is true inherently. All we have really is a struggle for upholding what is true the best we can with power. I think it's another dangerous area to go into. So I'd like to see... And this is why I'm such and still am a libertarian in many ways. If you give people the freedom to do what they want for themselves or for people they agree with voluntarily, to whether it's a scientific experiment for new drugs to help with something like cancer, uh, if you're on your deathbed or you might be, I should be able to take whatever drug or treatment I want. Or your own life. Yes, I agree with that. It's a sad thing, but I think laws to say against suicide are very absurd. Now, gets into a whole, like, it always stuck with me from Simone de Beauvoir, uh, her essay on the ambiguity of ethics. She talks about suicide, not in a legal sense, but, okay, you walk in and you see, like, your loved one trying to hang themselves, and you stop them and you save them. And they're mad at you at first, but they get better, and they thank you. And you're like, it was like an incredibly heroic action that you performed. But imagine that person is saved, then they try to do it again, and they're stopped. Try to do it again, and they're stopped. And they're put in an institution, and all they want to do is end it, and the doctors just keep them alive. It, it starts to become torturous. It's, in my mind, it's not necessarily heroic. Mm-hmm. Um, so it leaves that ambiguity. But my point is that if you give people the freedom to live their own lives and to co- cooperate with others as they please, as long as it's peaceful, even if it's risky behavior, as long as it's peaceful, then you can have a way to figure out what is actually a, a good objective standard, or at least a useful rule, and what is just a trend, a fashion, a taste. That really the problem isn't people disagree over, say, what's the best religion. The problem is the people who run the government are telling us what's the best religion. And when you see freedom of religion, you get this flourishing of all different types of religions, say, in the United States. Mm-hmm. As opposed to France, where it is like a truly atheist state, or it's an extreme secular state. Um, and I think that's the real battle going on right now. A lot of folks saying these are objective facts and rules when they aren't really. And then a lot of folks saying there is no such thing as objective absolute rules and standards and so really it's just a big fight for power and it leads to depressing places and this is why i end up watching craig ferguson videos over the weekend because you think about this stuff so long and you talk about it enough it makes you sad mm-hmm. that's why that's why i've been talking i'm upset you're upset with me right i'm now? not upset with you i'm upset with nothing means anything well then you um well i don't agree with that i know Right. I know, but there... There are people out there who think that? You said it yourself. Yeah, they say they think that, but... They're really just opportunists. Mm. Well, I saw a t-shirt the other day. Somebody sent me a text saying I'm a nihilist in the streets or nihilist in the streets, but an existentialist in the sheets. I was like, okay, I like that. Nothing means anything in the streets, but in the sheets, it can mean something for a little while, even though it's fleeting. 
Carterman wants it to be the other way around. Oh, really? Oh, my. Yeah. I don't know about that. That opens up a lot of doors. It does. It was a, it was a cheeky, clever little t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked who was wearing it, too. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was, the shirt was fairly transparent. Yeah. Oh. It was must have been cold in the house or something. It gets cold. It was it was it's, a great. I enjoyed that text okay. a lot. It made me think and it kinda of turned me on at the same time. It's like the ideal. <laughs> <laughs> no. For some reason I am both ponderous and aroused. <laughs> yes. But have you ever met somebody not somebody who said I'm a nihilist or nothing really means anything inherently, but have you ever met somebody who you think really believes that? Not somebody who says it, somebody who you think really believes it. I see it a lot in people's actions. Hmm. But I don't... I've never met anybody that comes out and it's just straight up. Nothing means anything. That's what I believe. 100% sure. Because if even if they did say that, it would be like, well, you don't even believe that. Right. If nothing believes anything... You can't believe in anything. Why are we even talking? Yeah. Well, it goes back to the Tolstoy I was reading. If you think life's just a stupid joke, why don't you end it? That was his logic. I thought it was a little bleak. Come on, Leo. Well, it, Maybe it's, it's you growing up in Russia. It's Russia for you. Yeah, yeah it's, it's Russia. Which still, I'm blown away that Russia gets in trouble for doping at the Olympics. Not in down, you know, like downhill skiing. Curling? Curling. And bobsledding. <laughs> like, do you really need performance-enhancing drugs for curling? No, uh, clearly, it's not their fault. This is some Western conspiracy. Uh, Russia has never done anything wrong. Right. Why, why do we got to bully Russia? Why right. does the world, why does the West want to bully Russia? Right. This is why we're so upset all the time. <laughs> We've never done anything wrong, ever. <laughs> In fact, look at how happy our people are. Look at that. Oh. See that? Here, Leo, let me spoon-feed you this propaganda. It's such it's an effective propaganda tactic, what Russia does. In my opinion, because they take a lot of truth about the world, and they exaggerate it. Mm-hmm. Like, Russia has never done anything. Yeah, yeah, y'all have done a lot. A lot. And you continue to do a lot. And your infrastructure's crumbling. And most of your population is 55 and up. They're a bunch of addicts and alcoholics. Lack education, lack economic opportunity, so no wonder you're playing up the nationalism and you're playing up the militarism. Mm-hmm. But your oligarchs have the EU by the... Mm-hmm. Well, with the natural gas and oil. 40% of yeah. the EU's natural gas and oil comes from Russia. 40%. That is insane. And then you see them getting all buddy-buddy with Turkey because they need that warm water port. Oh. And then they want to build that pipeline through Syria. And it's like, mm, I get it. I get it. I see. You can you could be doing all this other nonsense, Russia, but I see what you're trying to do here. And it's because your oligarchs need to be fat and happy. Well, and it does seem like Putin is the new sheriff of the Middle East. Now, not completely, um, but he is playing all sides. Now that he has his uh, military in Syria, and he is the big broker there, he's able to essentially have Assad and the Syrians and their allies, Hezbollah and Iran, come talk to him. On the other side of that coin, he gets the Saudis coming to talk to him, and the Israelis, and Turkey. And it, so essentially, Putin is holding all the cards, and 
You know, it's, I'm, it just leaves the Kurds caught in the middle, just uh, getting massacred. Oh, uh, by Turkey, a supposed NATO ally to the United States. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I brought up last week from now retired Admiral Stravridis, or Stravridis, I believe it's Stravridis. Uh, he was the supreme commander of NATO forces before he retired, before that head of European command, before that head of Southern command. And he pointed out a geopolitical hotspot I didn't think of. Because I've thought of, like, the South China Sea and all the competing claims there. I've thought about, say, North Korea and Russia and Eastern Europe, a little bit of Iran and the game going on between Iran and Saudi Arabia and Israel. But he, Stravridis pointed out that the probably the most dangerous place on Earth, other than Latin American countries, is it's still torn up by gang warfare. But the biggest threat geopolitically is the Eastern Mediterranean right near Turkey and off the coast of Syria. Because you have all those players I just named, uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Russia, the United States, Israel, uh, and Turkey, many others, including also China and India, all sailing their navies in that area for different reasons that don't often reconcile with one another. Mm-hmm. And it, it could be a volatile situation. So, okay, ISIS is pretty much done in Syria. I mean, my knee-jerk reaction, especially after how Afghanistan's, Afghanistan is still ongoing, Iraq is kind of being held together. Let's stop giving these people weapons. That's my knee-jerk reaction. Stop fun- funneling weapons into the region. Stop putting money into the region. And perfect example, it's not the area I was just describing, but Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. Let's stop giving money to Pakistan. If you want to get buddy-buddy with any country in that region, it should be India, for all sorts of reasons. Who is currently shelling Pakistan. Right. Well, and that's one of the most dangerous borders in the world, too. Mm-hmm. What is it, the Kashmir? I think Well, I think it was like either last night or the night before they started exchanging artillery fire. Really? I country. didn't see that. Mm-hmm. <sighs> but what do you say, if, if we're not to give these people weapons anymore, if we're not to police anymore, what do you say about the Boko Haram in mm. Nigeria? You know, people kicked up a fuss when they captured those 100 schoolgirls. Right. What about the 1,000 boys that they burned alive? Right. They, that was just wanton violence. The, the schoolgirls, that was to get people's attention because apparently 1,000 schoolboys will not get anybody's attention. How do you take care of that without actually removing the current Nigerian, northern Nigerian government from power? Right. Which you would have to do because they're... They're trying to emulate. Essentially, they're they're keeping the everyman poor, and they're making themselves fat and rich. And then there's woe is me when the Boko Haram does some crazy nonsense. You can't give weapons to the poor because they're fed a steady diet of propaganda. You can't give weapons to the Boko Haram because they're nuts. Yes, but their leaders aren't going to do anything. So what do you do if you're the United States and you've got your constituents Mm. calling you every day about it. Oh, calling you every day about it. I mean, my position is that is not the... It's not the role of the United States government to deal with that. It has been. It has been. I think the United States government is doing too much policing and that's... So you want to change the role of the United States government with regards to... I would go back to John Quincy Adams. We don't go in search of monsters abroad. So you would set back United States geopolitical thought 200 
50 years? Well, I would say that it's time for us to be, number one, recognizing our limitations. Um, but not isolating ourselves. Not No, I would be all for trade and diplomacy. Okay, I'm trying to give you I some... Would, I would have a very light military footprint. Military should be used for the straight-up defense of this nation. You're never going to get that budget passed. Oh, I, I'm not saying it's realistic. I'm just telling you what oh, I think. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and for things like Boko Haram or other things going on in the world, where it's sex slavery or certain trafficking that goes on, mm-hmm. there are groups out there that are usually ex-special forces or ex-DEA or ATF or whatever um, that are private organizations that try to stop kidnapping, that will literally do operations to take out say, drug cartels kidnapping somebody. I do not mind the idea of private organizations with some light regulation being able to take care of some of these situations. If you want to go do this, go ahead. Now, that everything, it's, it's yin and yang. There's, and it's already Pandora's box has been opened, that uh, private contractors are the new norm. Right. Every nation's now using them. Mm-hmm. Encouraged by the U.S., we created a market by paying so many of them in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's pretty much what we were doing in Libya. We had that's what happened in Benghazi. Most of those guys were maybe CIA or ex-CIA, but they're private contractors. We messed that up real bad. Oh, messed that up huge. And I'm still, I still suspect that was a gun buyback or something like that. There was some meeting that was going to take place to deal with one of these local militias, and the militia turned. And it's like, oh, we just killed a bunch of Americans, and it's a huge victory for us. You know what's interesting about these these discussions, for me, is that all of a sudden, the people we're talking about here stop being people. Yeah. They're just players in a game to move these things around on this geopolitical chessboard. Yeah. Because it, you would never get anything done if the people that were involved in this were still people. If you cared about them as humans rather than a means to an end, yeah. nothing would get done. Well, I, I, the way people think now, yeah. I mean, but you're, you're almost reminding me of Mr. Libertarian, Murray Rothbard. They, he wrote a paper. What is Libertarian? His, name, his name's Murray? Yeah, Murray Rothbard. Rothbard. He was, yeah, he was raised in New York City, I believe, as a communist Jew. His parents were communist Jews. And he got into a little bit of uh, Ayn Rand. He actually met Rand uh, when she was holding some of her meetings up in New York City. It's right when Atlas Shrugged came out. She was very big. And I believe he criticized her. Like, he loved her, but he criticized her slightly on one point she made. And so I think he was, like, excommunicated or something. But he was freaking brilliant. He was excommunicated from the Libertarian Party? Or from Ayn Rand's group. Ayn Rand's weird, man. She, When asked about it, Ayn Rand hated Libertarians. She called them hippies of the right. Um, she thought they were too subjectivist and whatever. Uh yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it get, you go down into that world. No wonder libertarians have been unsuccessful in mainstream politics. Let's take a vote. No. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> but Murray Rothbard, I mean, was an incredible uh, scholar. Like, wrote a thousand-page treatise on economics that was is brilliant, man, economy, and state. Then after that, had a supplement to that called power market. We're saying, okay, this is how the economy operates completely freely. If you have no interventions, now if you intervene, say, with a minimum wage or this type of price control or this type of taxation, these are the general effects of what happens. And 
then he wrote a whole hit colonial history of the United States. Then he was writing like modern day politics, uh, you know, topical stuff. He was just constantly writing. And he wrote up on libertarian foreign policy, essentially, and folks might see this as reductionist or too simplistic. For him, it's a non-aggression principle. That if you're going to try to stop bad guys, you're not allowed to kill innocent people in the process. You Ooh. can't treat people as fodder. Right. It, that's and you think point. that's what I'm saying? No, it's... It, I'm if, just, you I'm, take that, if you take to an extreme the basic... Maxim of treating others as you would be treated, treating everybody as a person, think you're right when things wouldn't get done the way the world currently works. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. And it, it's, a, it's frustrating. I get it, but it's frustrating, which I think really sums up what life is. Yeah. Very <laughs> I, frustrating. I get it. Yeah. I get why this is the way it is, but it's frustrating. But is this a justification? For if we're gonna if we're gonna go off of if you're gonna treat people as people yeah. rather than pawns in a geopolitical chess game, is the movement of money from point A to point B being or you know whatever stops it takes in between to get from point A to point B for you to pay this group of soldiers or for you to pay this group of people to do this and this? Does that eliminate the guilt? of them essentially being fodder since they're paid father. Mm. I don't think it eliminates any guilt. Assuming that guilt is felt at all. Right. Uh, no, and I think, I mean, if you talk to most soldiers, there's plenty of guilt to be go around. And people who command folks, it's the last thing they want to do. It's their toughest decision. These politicians sure don't look like they feel any guilt. Some of them don't. But um, that's a whole other subject. <laughs> But no, I think somewhat the money thing, like if you paint, it's however you build your narrative. It's not necessarily the money. It's like, how are you characterizing the people you're going after? So you're paying this private group to go after, say, Boko Haram. We are assuming everything said about Boko Haram is true. I am assuming that. And we probably. Things that are said are true, but what do you think? Well, like, do you consider pictures to be a part of that? Uh, yes, but pictures can obviously be doctored these days. You sound like a conspiracy theorist. No, I no, I think what's happened with Boko Haram is true. Okay. But I think you do have to be careful. Pictures can be doctored. And what's funny is often conspiracy theorists fall for con- faulty conspiracy theories because they looked at a doctored picture. Right. Somebody did some quick, you know, Photoshop and put on a few graphics and... Or they didn't analyze their camera enough, or they're, when they're looking through night vision, they don't realize camera gives off certain effects. Or if you're like, I heard something. It was on Joe Rogan's podcast. A guy debunks this stuff about the rods that exist. That if you take a snap a photo, you'll see like rods moving, and it's like it's supposed to be these interdimensional beings or devices, and it would show up on old photography. It would look like rods. Well, it's because of the resolution of the camera. And so, really, that was light at a low-resolution camera. If you take a better camera, better technology, those things don't appear at all. So, I mean, I think being skeptical is my general approach. Okay, yeah. And that's why I'm also timid to intervene, because anybody can come out with a story saying, you know, like Saddam is killing babies in their incubators when he invaded Kuwait. There are examples of people on the ground using propaganda to get more powerful players like the United States involved mm-hmm. for their cause. 
And you're right. Life is frustrating and complicated and messy. I get it. It sucks that it is so frustrating. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. It's frustrating for all you Beer Fest fans out there. Well, we talked like 38 minutes there straight. It's pretty good. It's a good start for uh, bringing up Craig Ferguson and then getting into whatever we got into. Mm -hmm. Geopolitics. The Nature of Truth. Johnny Lane. Song, Make It Move, off his new album, Signs. We'll be right back. Joey Clark. Song's called Into the Light. Off Johnny Lang's new album, Signs. Alongside me, as always, Troy. And Troy is really, you've served this role for me for years now. You're kind of a music canary for me. (laughs) Like, you go out there and you find different things, but you know what I like and you'll send it my way. What do you think of this Johnny Lang stuff? I like it. Uh, My... My parents had a Johnny Lang CD a long time ago that was recommended to them from some somebody that they worked with. And hmm. I remember listening to it, and it was really good. But I never I never picked it back up again just because it wasn't my CD. Well, the guy can play, man. But I, I hear, when I was listening to that, I, I thought to myself, I want to take that bass guitar, and I want to put it on a synth, and I want to modulate it a little bit. Because when he took it to the chorus, I kind of wanted, wanted a little more grain. Mm. I'm, I'm being a hipster, but I wanted a little more... Well, you listen to a lot of electronic music, so that's in your head, those yeah. sounds. I wanted a little more grain there. Yeah. Yeah, I thought the concert was fantastic. My one critiqued impact is when you're on the upper deck or the balcony. Where um, was this, by the way? Was this a... Impact downtown in the Renaissance Center. Okay. Uh, the vocals get drowned out a bit up top. So I wasn't able to hear his vocal as well as I would have liked. But uh, it was a great show, and Doyle Brahman, the second... He was the opening act. Guy was great. I told you off air. Mm-hmm. I saw him next to his merch table, his merchandise table, when I was going to get another beer. And uh, there's a little line, people taking photographs, getting signatures. And I walk up and said, I don't really want a photo or a signature. Just I remember you from Crossroads DVDs from 10 years ago. You doing Green Light Girl. The show tonight was great. And just thanks so much for being in Montgomery. And he said, oh, you sure you don't want a photo? I'm like, no, I'm good, man. Just great to meet you. And he goes, well, can I take a photo of your T-shirt? And it's my new... It's the little things, Troy. 
It's my new uh, T-shirt. It says game blouses. You know, it it would have been it would have been really funny for your self-importance if it was actually the nihilist in the streets, existentialist in the sheets <laughs> shirt. <laughs> That shirt doesn't look as good on me. Uh-uh. <laughs> Just got to turn that temperature a little bit. You're Joey Freeze, man. Oh, yeah. Well, but I have... I've never shared this fact with the audience, but you know it because we've been swimming. hmm You know, like there's a few times with the hot tub, even. Uh, I have tiny nipples. They're like dime size, smaller than that. Mm-hmm. It's weird. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not... You never thought it was weird? I'm only an expert on my male nipple. Right. Nipples. Right. I, I don't I'm not critiquing anybody else's. I'm you're, just you're saying just, it's a self critique of your yeah, own. Yeah, I'm very self conscious. And you think they're small. Yeah, if I say I'm Adam. Eve gives me the forbidden fruit. I eat it, the first thing I notice are my nipples. Really? It's very self conscious of Wow. Yeah, that's why I'm always wearing a shirt. Not the extra toe? Hey, don't tell people about the extra toe. They're Sorry. not ready for okay, that. Okay, there's... They're not ready for that. Yeah. I'm not a cat. People accept cats with extra toes. Well, it's not like you have a dew claw. Although, that would be a great nickname. Well, I've just hidden my dew claw. <laughs> along with my tail. <laughs> yeah, but don't you... Don't you have a few weird things? Extra appendage? I mean, I, I'm okay with my nipples. If, yeah, if that's, that's good. Okay. If that's what... I'm... I'm my nipples are great. I'm just saying, it, it's not really... It's, They're furry, though. No, I'm not. Mine are. Well, but you're a man. I know. It's just odd. Because I don't really have a lot... I'm not very hirsute, so to speak. Yeah, I'm a little hairier than you, except for... I don't I don't have a lot chest. of chest hair. Yeah. I, don't, I really don't. But my nipples... Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're a mountain man. Don't you hail from the... The Jeremiah Johnson Rockies? My hair grows so far down the back of my neck that it, it just, it basically, I was, I, I got my hair cut. I got, well, I got my hair cut today, but I got my hair cut a couple months back. And I remember talking to the lady. I was like, look, this is kind of embarrassing. But when you bring up my neckline, can you get down there? <laughs> get in there. Yeah. And, and she goes, oh, honey, you're fine. I've got guys that have a back line and a neckline. Oh, my. Yeah. Wow. And so, I consider myself fortunate in that regard. But is that the reason I'm laughing so hard? Is that photo of you? It's on your your stairwell when you walk up the stairs at y'all's house. I could rock a mullet, Joey. Yeah, there's this photo of you. How old are you in this photo? Young, young, real, real young. young. And it is a killer, fair-haired, like thin-haired, like mullet. Mm-hmm. It's coming out of the back of your neck. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hysterical. I, you know, I've always wondered why mullets are, are so popular. I mean, it's it's probably not the case nowadays. Like, like you know, some little boy named Lakin, he's going to have product in his hair. He's not going to have a mullet. But I noticed, did you ever have a mullet? No. I noticed with a lot of people our age when we were little kids, you know, we had mullets. No, my mom kept the the very classic, almost bowl cut that you could also, you know, a lot of guys in the South have the wavy hair where you're constantly flipping the hair. Mm-hmm. It used to be known for, as Justin Bieber would do that type of hair. Yeah. That's how my hair was. Now I just let it grow. I, I literally let it go, let it grow. Mm-hmm. And to, I got through the awkward phase. Mm-hmm. Some might say it's still awkward. I think it's luxurious and glorious. Yeah, But just let it go. 
and you'll be rewarded, gentlemen. You know, there's they added Queer Eye for the Straight Con on Netflix. Really? There's some hair tips in there. Yeah? Yeah. Have you watched it? I, I, I finished it. You finished it? I'm looking for all the tips. You, I need all the help I can get. Isn't it just called Queer Eye, though? I think it's called, yeah, it's just Queer Eye now. So it's Queer Eye for any eyes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they didn't, well, they didn't uh, make over any women. It was all guys. Mm. I think one or only one or two were actually gay. They needed oh, okay. help. Okay. Well, no, because the guys with the queer eye don't need the help. Usually. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, mean, I was. Just, I'm. I watched it and was like, you know, this is probably some feel-good stuff, but I got some great tips. Well, you know, you made me think of something I heard Craig Ferguson say over the weekend when I think he was interviewing uh, Stephen Fry. Does this have to do with Icarus? Careful, Icarus. Careful, Icarus. <laughs> it's not that clip. It's one of my favorites, though. Uh, Careful, Icarus. Don't fly too close to the sun. Your wax wings will melt. No, he was talking to Stephen Fry, Craig Ferguson was, and he says, you know, sometimes, I can't really do a Scottish accent, but, you know, sometimes, you, you know, things that you think will go together, like peanut butter and jelly, mustard and mayonnaise, salt and pepper, I think they go together fine, but they don't. Gay men, cats, and old women. They usually, you'd think that would go along splendidly. Sometimes it's a real problem. There's some fights that are had. Yeah, it sounds catty. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm on the fence about getting a cat. Because I'm at that point where it's crap or get off the pot. Because my brother, Will, probably won't be my roommate after April. He's going to move out. And he has Gimli, the red and fuzzy big booty Buddha, who's mm -hmm. been around for now three years. He's my favorite thing in the in the world. He's, really is. He's awesome. And uh, I think you said it best when you first met him. He licked you, and then he said stop. And then he kind of just sat there looking at you, wagging his tail, and you go, what a noble creature. Mm -hmm. He is. Mm -hmm. He's a wonderful dog, but I'm so torn because I know when Will moves out, Gimli will move out. Mm -hmm. So I'm deciding, do I need to go save a puppy from the humane shelter? Do I get a cat? You don't, you don't get cats. Mm. Cats, you just... Cats acquire humans. Really? Uh-huh. It's the weirdest thing. You, you, mm. I mean, if you go and you go to a humane society or humane shelter and you walk in, you say, I want that cat right there. Mm. Not going to have a good time. You need to play with all the little cats? No, you go in and a cat, if it's so inclined... and the, Make no mistake about it. It is through no fault of your own is that this, a cat does not choose you. Wait, is this some grand metaphor for dating and my love life? No, 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 no. This is the honest at God's truth. Okay. A cat will come up to you. That's your cat, buddy. Oh. It happened with Toby. It happened yeah. with Bucky. It happened with Milo. I think it happened with Buster. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all your past cats. All my well, family. Toby, past cats. current. We went to PetSmart, or my mom went to PetSmart, and uh, I was at, like out on a date at the time, and I, she sent me a text message. She was like, hey, you got a cat. <laughs> what? She's like, yeah. <laughs> and it turns out she went to PetSmart, and she was looking at cats, and she saw this little orange fluff ball, and she picked it up, and it Toby just latched on was like, okay, this See, is this is us now. We're going home well, together. This is the fact that Toby never chose me, he never seemed to like really warm up to me. Toby doesn't warm up to anybody. <laughs> the only reason Toby likes me is forced. It's a, it's a Stockholm syndrome, essentially. Right. But you know, Aaron, Aaron's got three cats now, and they all chose him. He like fed one one time, and then he just got a new cat roommate. Yeah. They okay. named it George. George. And then George turned out to be female. 
so they still call it George. <laughs> now, I did have one cat choose me. Um, my brother's girlfriend was supposed to be watching a cat all summer for her roommate in Auburn. My, the girlfriend and my brother wanted to go do something. I'm like, Joey, could you watch the cat while we're out of town this weekend? I'm like, what do I need to do? Eh, feed it, make sure the litter box is cleaned out. Other than that, you're fine. They're pretty low maintenance. It was a, a tiny cat named Elaine. When I got home to the apartment, that cat would not leave me alone. It was the sweetest thing in the world. Sat in my lap after eating, would just sit in my lap, rub its head on my beard stubble, sleep on me at night. And it was, as soon as I would get home, start meowing at me. Mm-hmm. It was the neediest, sweetest little Elaine cat. Mm-hmm. If I can get a cat like that, I'm all for it. But if, I'm probably going to end up a cat who's like, oh, hi, Joey. You're here? Feed me. And then leave me alone. You could call him aloof de floof. Aloof de floof. I like that. <laughs> so I don't know. I could just adopt an old lady. <laughs> <laughs> Officer, what's wrong? We've had a series of kidnappings at the Seven Oaks <laughs> in-care facility. There's a young man out there acquiring He's the elderly. Saucers of milk. <laughs> Laser pointers. He's become an expert on hard candy and the New Deal. <laughs> the stocks of butterscotch are going through the roof. Oh, why is that a thing? Is that the only candy back then? Butterscotch hard candy? I don't know, but it reminds me of that Lewis Black joke about candy corn. <laughs> <laughs> All the candy corn in the world was made in 1927. <laughs> and every year, they send out their minions to take the candy corn out of the trash can. <laughs> Now, for a year, I somehow forget. I've never had this before. <laughs> and I go to try it because there's some bowl untouched usually. And I try and go, no! <laughs> <laughs> I worry, though, with somebody like Louis Black or even like George Carlin. Like, they don't really get good at their profession until they're kind of crotchety old men. Like they, That's the nature of that style of comedy. I yeah, they grow style. into their character and their style. Mm-hmm. And I'm worried I'm not going to grow into my style of radio until like a few decades. It's going to be mediocrity for a while. I'm just talking out loud here. Are, are you, it sounded like you were kind of begging me to say you're not mediocre. No, I, wasn't, I wasn't fishing. You weren't fishing? I wasn't fishing. In that case... I like this show. I enjoy doing this show. You knock it out of the park, man. Oh. Keep it up. Well, and you're alongside helping me. Well, that that's a, a secondary bonus. Oh. Good show. Get to hang out with my best friend. Good show. Good show. Sorkin. <laughs> I'll be back tomorrow night. Talk to y'all folks then.